What is the meaning of Christmas? I think at this point in our service, some of you may roll an eye when you hear me ask that question. I think you've made it abundantly clear at this point what we believe at New City, that this is about the birth of Jesus. For others, of course, of a a certain generation, that question may trigger another scene in your minds, likely one from a Charlie Brown Christmas special where Linus sets the record straight for Charlie Brown on that question. And how does he do it? He does it by reading from Luke 2, 8 to 14, the King James Version. And he concludes with this. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And we could say amen to that. But I want to probe a little deeper this morning. What does this meaning, this central message, mean for you? That is to say, is this story meant to affect you in any way? Is it a bare historical sequence, a just-so story? Or is there a how and a why? Some might interject here and say, well, there are principles emerging from this story that are useful and we should adopt them. We should be a peaceful people. We should be generous. We should be joyful. Is that it? Does the birth story of Jesus compel us to adopt some kind of new moral framework? I think if I were to summarize maybe the best of secular teaching and the worst of Christian teaching about the effect of Jesus' birth, that's essentially what is being said. The so-called Christmas story is a catalyst to cause us all to pull up our moral bootstraps. However, at the risk of a joint lawsuit from Charles Dickens, Hallmark, and far too much of Western evangelicalism, let me assert that I don't think that's right. That should not be our primary takeaway from the birth of Jesus. And to help us perceive a better answer today, we're going to look closely at just one verse this morning, Luke 2:14, And it's in this verse that we get commentary from heaven itself on our question today. Glory to God in the highest heaven, on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Look with me now at the big picture statement in your bulletins. The song of the heavenly multitude is the God-ordained commentary on the preceding announcement of the birth of Jesus. It teaches us that Jesus' incarnation has two results in two locations. Glory is given in heaven to God alone. Peace is given on earth, effective for God's people alone. We'll look at both of these in turn and see how they connect. But first, let me set the scene for us here, the background setting of the scene we're coming into in verse 14. It is a field outside of the town of Bethlehem in the Roman province of Judea. It's about 2,027 years ago. And we should note here briefly the source of Luke's account. I think we're tempted to dismiss some of the claims here as being mere tradition, but let's get a refresher. Luke 1, 2. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke's gospel is a collaboration of eyewitness accounts. If you're a skeptic here today, investigating the reliability of the gospels, I would encourage you in that direction. If that is your primary barrier to Christianity, you may be surprised at what you find. I'll just leave that with you. But let's return to our setting. Verses 1 to 7 tell us that Jesus is born in Bethlehem in a livestock feeding area. Bethlehem is the ancestral town, of course, of King David. 
It's a happening spot during this Roman census because, and because of that, there's a lack of conventional lodging. A lot of out-of-towners are in town, including Mary and Joseph, Joseph being, of course, a descendant of David. Verse 8, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. So here we have the locals, you could say. They're going about their trade as they usually would, and one can imagine they could be grumbling, perhaps, about the traffic in town that week. In any case, these shepherds, they are on night watch. We don't know how many. All we know is there is more than one. They're never named, but their profession is, and of course, much has been said about that. It appears intentional. Perhaps too much, though, has been made about this point. It is beyond doubt that to be a shepherd was not to be someone of high position in first century Judea, though it is, I think, a bit far to say that shepherds were hated or despised. You hear that thrown around a lot. Uh, Some of that comes from later Jewish tradition. No, there are many worse things socially than being a shepherd in the first century, a Roman tax collector, for one. And looking at it from another perspective, actually we see from the whole of Scripture that shepherds are a resoundingly positive image. Moses and David, they emerge from the profession. Jesus later calls himself the great shepherd, and church leaders are likened to shepherds. There may even be some foreshadowing to that, as these shepherds are entrusted with sharing God's message. The bottom line is, these folks are in a humble position. They are average Joes, possibly below average Bobs. As one commentator wisely concludes, the shepherds, and this is the big one, the shepherds represent a group, a general group that we see again and again throughout Scripture of the humble and the lowly. This is the group that consistently receive God's word in faith. That's what we see with the shepherds. Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, James 4.10, and he will lift you up. And so it is to these humble shepherds that God's messengers appear in verses 9 through 14. In verse 9, we learn an angel of the Lord appeared to them first. This could be Gabriel. After all, he's the angel who has already delivered a message to Mary in the Christmas accounts. Or it could be the same unnamed messenger that has appeared to Joseph and has appeared to Zechariah. He is identified only as an angel of the Lord. It's possible this is even God himself in a theophany, taking on the form of an angel. Several times in the Old Testament, we actually see that. There's a reference to the angel of the Lord, but it appears to be an appearance of God himself. Think Joshua outside the city of Jericho. In any case, this angelic figure, he has a message. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, time does not allow us to dwell at length on this first message of the angel today. In many ways, though, this is what I want you to see here. This operates as the headline. Some of you know that I work in radio. It's often said that good headlines, they are short usually. They don't explain per se. They simply declare and they often compel you to keep listening. And to keep watching. Breaking news. Man dead in playground shooting. Breaking news from Ottawa. Parliament dissolved. Election to be called. Breaking news from Bethlehem. The Messiah has been born. 
And again, there's much more to be said on these verses, some of which will emerge as we look at verse 14. But that's sort of the bird's eye view. This first messenger has delivered the headline. The Messiah, as we heard earlier from John, this long-promised Savior of the Jewish people, he has been born in Bethlehem, and surprisingly in a cattle stall at that. And so as the shepherds process this news, we go from the anchor desk, you could say, to the studio panel. Our panel of experts emerges in verse 13 to comment on this news. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And again, this is the commentary on the headline. They are the results, the impacts, the reverberations of the Messiah's birth, and not just any Messiah, but one who was called the Lord, God himself. Now, we saw earlier this great company declares that Jesus' birth has two results in two locations. We're going to look at the first one right now. Point number one, glory is given in heaven to God alone. At this point, we have to ask, what is glory? It's a tough one to define. I think we throw it around quite a lot. If you've been watching the World Cup, British commentators love to use this word to describe things in the World Cup. And apologies to those missing the final. Your reward is in heaven this morning. Uh, <laughs> glory, though, is a versatile concept. It can be given. It can be received. It can be something or someone. It's like they actually have. You have glory. It's even a place, as we sang about earlier. Angels from the realms of glory. So what does it mean here? Hymn writer Matt Papa, he wrote our last song that we'll sing later, he provides two helpful descriptors to distinguish the two main uses of glory in the Bible. There is glory within, and there is glory given. And often glory given is in response to seeing glory within. Glory within was defined once by Jonathan Edwards as the outshining of internal excellence. So the glory of God, you could say, is the outshining of God's excellence. It's what he allows us to see of his goodness. This is why we often associate light with glory. Back in verse 9, we of course saw the glory of the Lord shone around the angel of the Lord. But here in verse 14, we're dealing with the other glory, glory given. The heavenly host is giving glory. And this, I think we can often think of a synonym here for glory. It just, it's glory and praise, and it can be used interchangeably. I think that's unhelpful. It is possible to praise without giving glory. Praise is just the action. To give glory is to praise something worthy. It is to respond to something glorious in worship, something that has glory. In verse 14, the heavenly multitude is crying out, Behold! Goodness, behold things that are too wonderful to comprehend. Behold this good news of great joy. The heavenly host is saying we are beholding the matchless goodness of God in the sending of his son as a man. But let's back up for a second. Who is this multitude? Who is this appearance made up of? I'm assuming that uh, some of you, perhaps my brother being one of them, you grew up here today going to Sunday school and therefore you've done your fair share of crafts depicting the scene. If that's true for you, I imagine the image in your head like mine is probably woefully lacking. 
of this scene. There's like a friendly looking angel out front. He's smiling. He's got a white robe on. And there's a bunch of other angels behind him that look basically the same. They're holding their choir books. They're singing rather stoically, rather pretty. Let's look at verse 13. Who is singing? It is a great company of the heavenly hosts. Two observations about this. First of all, this is no mere choir. This is an army. The NASB translates verse 13 helpfully for us here. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army. The Greek has clear military overtones. So if you think choir, at least think military choir. Second of all, it's probably not just angels. This multitude likely at least includes cherubim, seraphim, the other living creatures mentioned that are in heaven's throne throne room throughout the Bible. What we have here is the curtain into God's very throne room being pulled back. There's really only one other scene like this in the New Testament. It's in Revelation 4 and 5. Turn there with me. This will be helpful for us this morning. Revelation 4 and 5. It's here that the Apostle John is given a longer look at a later point in the history of redemption into what the shepherds glimpse this night in Bethlehem. Verse 1 of chapter 4. After this, I, John, looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Verse 6. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy. It's the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That is the heavenly multitude that the shepherds see in verse 14. It's the whole host of the heavenly realm. I don't think it's an accident that these glorious glimpses we get of heaven and its worship come at the points that they do. In Luke 2 and in Revelation Five. Together, these snapshots bookend the climax of God's plan of redemption. In Luke 2, we see them marvel at the incarnation of the Son of God. And in Revelation 5, we see them fall down in worship as the incarnate and now risen Son, the Lamb who is worthy to take the scroll, marches back into his Father's throne room, victorious over death, and sits down at his right hand. Friends, the birth of Jesus is never to be separated from his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It is rather the opening scene of one grand act of redemption. In the birth of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, in the resurrection of Jesus, in the ascension of Jesus, God is seen to be glorified in the highest heaven. Where else do we see this? Palm Sunday. Hosanna. That means save us. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
There we see that highest heaven phrase again. The crowds are mimicking the praise of the heavenly multitude better than they know as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Not to overthrow the Romans, but to die on the Roman cross and in so doing truly save his people. So what then do we learn from this first proclamation of the heavenly multitude? At least two things. God is always the one who is most glorified in redemption. Ephesians 1-6, his salvation plan is all to the praise of his glorious grace. The Father's plan to send the Son into the world as a man is not a divine concession. It is not a plan B. It is his good design for his maximum glory. Second, the uniqueness of the appearance of the whole host of heaven in this moment In verse 14, back in Luke 2, it teaches us that in Jesus' birth, God's glory is on display like never before. 1 Peter 1.12, even angels long to look into these things, speaking there of God's plan to redeem humanity in this way. Friends, Jesus did not come to redeem fallen angels. They do not bear his image. Unfallen angels are simply left to marvel at God's love for rebellious humans. This rejoicing in heaven is unprecedented, at least since the fall, when we see this in Luke 2.14. It's as we sang earlier, ye who sang creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Secondly, the song of the heavenly multitude teaches us that Jesus' incarnation has another result in another location. Peace given on earth, effective for God's people alone. There is notable symmetry in the two phrases of this song from the heavenly company. Three pairings. There's places, heaven, earth, persons, God, those with whom he is pleased. And then there's a result for each person. Glory, peace. And so again, much of our work will need to focus on understanding this result in the second half. On earth, peace. Peace for whom? We'll get to that question in a moment, but first, let's deal with peace. What is this peace? Ask people to, five people to define peace, and I think you might get five different answers, much like glory. You might say rest, absence of conflict, a friendly greeting, freedom from disturbance, silence. None of those perfectly fit what this word means. The Greek word here is the equivalent of the Hebrew term shalom. It was used as a conventional greeting, at this time, among the Jewish people. But that's because the idea of shalom was woven into the heart of the Jewish worldview. It was woven into the Old Covenant. It denotes not just an absence of conflict, but a restoration of wholeness. A state of being in right relationship with God, with others, and God's good creation. A returning to Eden as close as humanly possible. And so it is this piece that the heavenly army now says is on earth, on earth peace, on earth shalom. It might be helpful to think of it this way. This peace is an objective state of being, not a subjective feeling. This is the kind of peace the incarnation of Jesus brings. But for whom and how? Verse 14, on earth Peace to those upon whom his favor rests. So we must ask, of course, on whom does God's favor rest? Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. 
One chapter ahead, verse 21. We're now 30 years after the events of our verse today. Verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. If you have an ESV translation of our verse this morning, you're at an advantage. The ESV renders the second half of Luke 2.14, On earth, peace among those with whom he, God, is pleased. It's the same word in both chapter 2 and chapter 3 here. Now turn to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 5, if you can. Matthew 17, 5. Here, Jesus is now preparing to head up to Jerusalem, where he knows he will die. He takes three disciples with him up a mountain to pray, and his face is transfigured before them. He essentially shows them something of his deity. Verse 5, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Our word again, listen to him. So we have three interjections from heaven at three moments in the life of Jesus. There's one at his birth, promising shalom, a state of peace to those upon whom God's favor rests. The next is at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, identifying him as the one who has this favor from God. And the third, immediately before his death, reaffirming this status as the favored one prepares to go away, no one expected a Messiah to go. So on whom does God's favor rest? None other than the incarnate Son. But our text in Luke 2.14 seems to indicate this is a group of people to those. So who else gets this peace? Who else is favored? This was a mystery hidden until after Jesus ascended to the Father. But through the Holy Spirit, the answer has been revealed to us in his word. Let me read a selection of verses from the New Testament. See if you can see a pattern here. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6.5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Ephesians 2.6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And then finally, Colossians 1.19-20, for God was pleased, and there's our word again, to have all of his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. How? By making peace through his blood. Shed on the cross. Friends, brothers, and sisters, it's simply as we sung earlier in the heart the herald angels sing. Now in mystic union join, thine to ours and ours to thine. God's favor rests on all those united to his son by faith in what he has accomplished in his death and resurrection for sin. God's favor rests on all those united to Jesus, the second Adam. And how are we united to him? It is by faith. By faith in his substitutionary death, by faith in his life-giving resurrection. 
We saw something of this last week, didn't we, New City, in John 20. Jesus, of course, appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. And what does he say three times to them? He says, Shalom, peace be with you. But then what does he do right after? He points to his wounds all three times. Shalom, wounds. Shalom, wounds. Jesus wants his followers, he wants us to see that true peace with God is only possible through the cross. Therefore, by faith, those who genuinely confess the words of Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with him. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. These are the people who have everlasting peace with God. But someone may ask, how can I get this faith? Where does it come from? Can I just conjure it up for my own willpower? No. Hear heaven's song one more time. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. God rests his favor. We do not manipulate it. Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, God is the first actor in salvation. 1 Corinthians 1.29, it is because of him that we are in Christ. And we must never forget that truth. It should humble us anew. But one caveat here, and John has mentioned this early in the service today, Luke 2.14 does not negate Luke 2.10. The good news of the first angel that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that he delivers, the son of David, the savior, the Lord of all, it is for all people, without a clarification, without an asterisk. This was true then, and it is true today. However, only some will experience the benefits of his coming for all people. And while you live and breathe, while you hear God's word this morning, God's salvation mercy in Jesus is extended to you. So believe. Be joined to Christ by faith. Have peace with God This is indeed good news of great joy. Peace on earth, effective for those united to his son alone. Now, by way of conclusion, consider briefly how the result of Jesus' birth in heaven and earth are related. The two results. After all, the song is one thought, not two. The glory given in heaven is in celebration of the peace given on earth. And there is no peace if God was not glorified. How is God glorified by his plan of redemption? It is because through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, not only do a people take shape that are united to his son by faith, but the curse begins to be undone. It's as we sang again, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Look at Colossians 1.19 again. I read this earlier. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In the birth of Jesus, we essentially have the first step toward the reuniting of heaven and earth. Romans 8, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory 
of the children of God. That's what begins as Jesus comes as the head of a new humanity. Friends, one day heaven will open again. All people will again hear heaven's praises. Revelation 22.3, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, among those upon whom his favor rests, and he will dwell with them. Eden will be restored. The new heavens and new earth will be filled with the glory of God. The glory will be given in highest heaven. Peace will rule on the earth. And indeed, those statements are one and the same. For all those who are found not to be in Christ will be swept away in the day of judgment. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which all must be saved. Friends, brothers and sisters, let us cry out now with the heavenly army. Glory to God in the highest heaven. Let us confess with them, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And let us rejoice that in the incarnation of the Son of God, there is on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Amen.